This is the Right Brain podcast with me Leela Krishna. We're reading the novel Anandamath or the Sacred Brotherhood. This novel was written by Bankim Chandra Chatterjee in 1882 and translated into English by Sri Aurobindo and Borin Ghosh. Sign up at leela.substack.com that's l i l a.substack.com to get these episodes delivered straight to your inbox. In last week's episode, we went back to 1770. We saw how devastating the Bengal famine was. We met Mohendra and his wife Kalyani. They leave their village which is torn apart by famine and disease. On the road, when Mohendra went to find food for his tired and hungry child, a group of bandits happen upon Kalyani and the infant and carry them away. What happens next? Listen on to find out in the second episode of Anandamath. It was a very beautiful woodland in which the robbers set down Kalyani. There was no light, no eye to see the loveliness. The beauty of the wood remained invisible, like the beauty of soul in a poor man's heart. There might be no food in the country, but there was a wealth of flowers in the woodland. So thick was the fragrance that even in that darkness one seemed to be conscious of a light. On a clear spot in the middle, covered with soft grass, the thieves set down Kalyani and her child, and themselves sat around them. Then they began to debate what to do with them, for what ornaments Kalyani had with her were already in their possession. One group was very busy with the division of this booty, but when the ornaments had been divided, one of the robbers said, "What are we to do with the gold and silver?" Someone give me a handful of rice in exchange for an ornament I am tortured with hunger I have eaten nothing today but the leaves of trees No sooner had one so spoken than all echoed him and a clamor arose Give us rice give us rice we do not want gold and silver The leader tried to quiet them but no one listened to him Gradually high words began to be exchanged abuse flowed freely and a fight became imminent everyone in a rage pelted the leader with his whole allotment of ornaments he also struck one or two and this brought all of them upon him striking at him in a general assault the robber captain was emaciated and ill with starvation one or two blows laid him prostrate and lifeless then one in that hungry wrathful excited maddened troop of plunderers cried out We have eaten the flesh of dogs and jackals and now we are racked with hunger. Come friends, let us feast today on this rascal. Then all began to shout aloud, Glory to Kali, bomb Kali, today we will eat human flesh. And with this cry those black emaciated corpse-like figures began to shout with laughter and dance and clap their hands in the congenial darkness. One of them set about lighting a fire to roast the body of the leader. He gathered dried creepers, wood and grass and struck flint and iron and set light to the collected fuel. 
As the fire burned up a little, the dark green foliage of the trees that were neighbours to the spot, mango, lemon, jackfruit and palm, tamarind and date, were lit up faintly with the flames. Here the leaves seemed ablaze, there the grass brightened in the light. In some places the darkness only became more crass and deep. When the fire was ready, one began to drag the corpse by the leg and was about to throw it on the fire. But another intervened and said, Drop it! Stop! Stop! If it is on the grand meat that we must keep ourselves alive today, then why the tough and juiceless flesh of this old fellow? We shall eat what we have looted and brought with us today. Come along! There is that tender girl. Let us roast and eat her. Another said, Roast anything you like, my good fellow, but roast it. I can't stand this hunger no longer. Then all gazed greedily towards the place where Kalyani and her daughter had lain. They saw that place empty. Neither child nor mother were there. Kalyani had seen her opportunity when the robbers were disputing, taken her daughter into her arms, put the child's mouth to her breast and fled into the wood. Aware of the escape of their prey, the ghost-like ruffian crew ran in every direction with a cry of kill, kill. In certain conditions, man is no better than a ferocious wild beast. The darkness of the wood was very deep and Kalyani could not find her way. In the thickly woven entanglement of trees, creepers and thorns, there was no path at the best of times, and on that there came this impenetrable darkness. Separating the branches and creepers, pushing through thorn and briar, Kalyani began to make her way into the thickness of the wood. The thorns pierced the child's skin, and she cried from time to time, and at that, the shouts of the pursuing robbers rose higher. In this way, with torn and bleeding body, Kalyani made far progress into the woodland. After a little while, the moon rose. Until then, there was some slight confidence in Kalyani's mind that in the darkness, the robbers would not be able to find her and after a brief and fruitless search, would desist from the pursuit. But now that the moon had risen, that confidence left her. The moon, as it mounted into the sky, shed its light on the woodland tops and the darkness within was suffused with it. The darkness brightened and here and there through gaps, the outer luminousness found its way inside and peeped into the thickets. The higher the moon mounted, the more light penetrated into the reaches of foliage, the deeper all the shadows took refuge in the thicker parts of the forest. Kalyani too, with her child, hid herself farther and farther in where the shadows retreated. And now the robbers shouted higher and began to come running from all sides. The child in her terror wept louder. Kalyani then gave up the struggle and made no further attempt to escape. She sat down with the girl on her lap on a grassy thornless spot at the foot of a great tree and called repeatedly, Where art thou, thou whom I worship daily, to whom daily I bow down, in reliance on whom I had the strength to penetrate into this forest? Where art thou, O Madhusudana? At this time, what with fear, the deep emotion of spiritual love and worship, 
and the lassitude of hunger and thirst, Kalyani gradually lost sense of her outward surroundings and became full of an inward consciousness in which she was aware of a heavenly voice singing in mid-air. Hare Murare, Maduketa Bare, Gopala Gobinda Mukunda Shore, Hare Murare, Maduketa Bare, Gopala Gobinda Mukunda Shore. Kalyani had heard from her childhood in the recitation of the Puranas that the sages of paradise roamed the world on the paths of the sky, crying aloud to the music of the harp, the name of Hari. That imagination took shape in her mind and she began to see with her inner vision a mighty ascetic, harp in hand, white-bodied, white-haired, white-bearded, white-robed, tall of stature, singing in the path of the azure heavens. Hare Murare, Maduketa Bhare, Gopala Gobinda Mukunda Shore. Hare Murare, Maduketa Bhare, Gopala Gobinda Mukunda Shore. Gradually, the song grew nearer. Louder, she heard the words. Hare Murare, Maduketa Bhare, Gopala Gobinda Mukunda Shore. Then, still nearer, still clearer. Hare Murare, Maduketa Bhare, Gopala Gobinda Mukunda Shore. At last, over Kalyani's head, the chant rang echoing in the woodland. Hare Murare, Maduketa Bhare, Gopala Gobinda Mukunda Shore. Then Kalyani opened her eyes. In the half-lustrous moonbeams, suffused and shadowed with the darkness of the forest, she saw in front of her that white-bodied, white-haired, white-bearded, white-robed image of a sage. Dreamily, all her consciousness centered on the vision. Kalyani thought to bow down to it, but she could not perform the salutation. Even as she bent her head, all consciousness left her and she lay fallen supine on the ground. In a huge tract of ground in the forest, there was a great monastery engirt with ruined masses of stone. Archaeologists would tell us that this was formerly a monastic retreat of the Buddhists and afterwards became a Hindu monastery. Its row of edifices were two-storied, in between were temples and in front a meeting hall. Almost all these buildings were surrounded with a wall and so densely hidden with the trees of the forest that even at daytime and at a short distance from the place, none could divine the presence of a human habitation here. The buildings were broken in many places, but by daylight, one could see that the whole place had been recently repaired. A glance showed that man had made his dwelling in this profound and inaccessible wilderness. It was in a room in this monastery where a great log was blazing that Kalyani first returned to consciousness and beheld in front of her that white-bodied, white-robed great one. Kalyani began once more to gaze on him with eyes large with wonder, for even now memory did not return to her. Then the mighty one of Kalyani's vision spoke to her. My child, this is a habitation of the gods. Have no apprehension here. I have a little milk. Drink it and then I will talk with you. At first, Kalyani could understand nothing. Then, as by degrees her mind recovered some firm foundation, she threw the hem of her robe around her neck and made an obeisance at the Great One's feet. 
He replied with a blessing and brought out from another room a sweet-smelling earthen pot in which he had warmed some milk at the blazing fire. When the milk was warm, he gave it to Kalyani and said, My child, give some to your daughter to drink and then drink some yourself. Afterwards, we can talk. Kalyani, with joy in her heart, began to administer the milk to her daughter. The unknown then said to her, While I am absent, have no anxiety, and left the temple. After a while, he returned from outside and saw that Kalyani had finished giving the milk to her child, but had herself drunk nothing. The milk was almost as it was at first. Very little had been used. My child, said the unknown, you have not drunk the milk. I am going out again, and until you drink, I will not return. The sage-like personage was again leaving the room, when Kalyani once more made him an obeisance and stood before him with folded hands. What is it you wish to say? asked the recluse. Then Kalyani replied, Do not command me to drink the milk. There is an obstacle. I will not drink it. The recluse answered in a voice full of compassion, Tell me what is the obstacle. I am a forest-dwelling ascetic and you are my daughter. What can you have to say which you will not tell me? When I carried you unconscious from the forest, you had then seemed to me as if you had been sadly distressed with thirst and hunger. If you do not eat and drink, how can you live? Kalyani answered, the tears dropping from her eyes. You are a god and I will tell you. My husband remains still fasting and until I meet him again or hear of his tasting food, how can I eat? The ascetic asked, where is your husband? I do not know, Kalyani said. The robbers told me away after he had gone out in search of milk. Then the ascetic, by question after question, elicited all the information about Kalyani and her husband. Kalyani did not indeed utter her husband's name. She could not. But the other information the ascetic received about him was sufficient for him to understand. He asked her, Then you are Mohendra Singha's wife. Kalyani, in silence and with bowed head, began to heap wood on the fire at which the milk had been warmed. Then the ascetic said, Do what I tell you. Drink the milk. I am bringing you news of your husband. Until you drink the milk, I will not go. Kalyani asked, Is there a little water anywhere? The ascetic pointed to a jar of water. Kalyani made a cup of her hands. The ascetic filled it with water. Kalyani drank it and said, I have drunk nectar of the gods. Do not tell me to eat or drink anything else. Until I have news of my husband, I will take nothing else. The ascetic answered, Abide without fear in this temple. I am going in search of your husband. That was the second episode of Anandamath. Did you notice all the prayers and bhajans to Krishna? That's because Bengal, where this novel is set, is the home of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. It is the same tradition as Iskon and the Hare Krishnas. Were you horrified by the references to cannibalism in this episode? It certainly shocked me. It really drives home how dire the famine was. The sad thing is, this wasn't the last famine Bengal saw. There was another devastating famine in 1943, 
and several experts concur that it could have been prevented or at least alleviated. But Winston Churchill thought otherwise. Anandamath was written by Bankim Chandra Chatterjee, translated into English by Sri Aurobindo and Baran Ghosh, and read by Leela Krishna. Sign up at leela.substack.com, that's lila.substack.com, to get these episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Gopal Govinda Mukund Shore Hare Murari Madhu Kaita Bhare Gopal Govinda Mukund Shore